0: As my favorite anarchist, Henry David Throw, once said, Things don't change, we change. Chuck Yates here, inviting you to the Digital Wildcatters Conference Evolve, the next evolution of oil and gas. March 10th, brought to you by Technique FMC. Sign up now at digitalwildcatters.com. Let's be the change.
1: Mo Thugs, all good, because that song is. <laughs> Mo Thugs, all good. Because that's the song I lost my virginity to. Virgern-
0: virginity, <laughs> your virginity, dude. What were
1: you doing? <laughs> you know, you were supposed to bring wine, and I'm done with the beer. And so. why are you dedicating this to Stacy? Okay. Here we go. I actually just realized <laughs> I never put that together. Either. The, the, the <laughs> man <laughs> is an onion. I'm telling y'all, the man is an onion. <laughs> I'm I am lost in 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 like I would read a book even in high school about this, the way this guy talks I can't tell if he's like intelligent or or just backwoods, I can't tell which one but here we go Mo Thugs, all good, because that is the song I lost my fraternity
2: (laughs) I lost my
0: virginity in a
2: fraternity Hey
0: hey Chase I don't think we're going to edit this this is just going to be a two and a half hour three hour pod, we're just going (laughs) to drop it
1: Oh my God take eight I feel, I feel I'm so sorry Chuck. I feel like you came in to just
2: it's all good punch dude.
1: the time clock and keep on going on a Thursday.
0: Hey, but hey dude, nope my life is materially better now that I know that for ver, 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 for or whatever <laughs> you say is an actual
1: word I you know simple minds for simple people and we're both simple. Mo Thugs, all good, because that song I lost my virginity to. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I had respect for this guy before I started this podcast. I had a lot of fucking respect for this guy, and it's gone. It's gone. (laughs) We're gonna we're gonna He's do in, a whole podcast. You know what? I think he was creating... in my five zero Mustang as I was racing down in Port Arthur <laughs> one time. I think he was one of the guys smoking weed with me, dude. I think we're
0: gonna do a whole podcast on synonyms <laughs> with '90s random consultant virginity. Let's call it no nut. Is <laughs> no, that no, easier not... to pronounce? <laughs> <I> mean... <sighs> Is that okay? Or do I mean this? Yeah, yeah. Does he speak this way? Because <laughs> I speak this way, but... B- BRV actually kind of does speak this way, but uh, just muddle your way through. I'm sorry for breaking. <clears throat> muddle, muddle your way through it. It's all
1: Does good. he muddle his way through? Because if he hasn't <laughs> gone to college, my God.
2: Well, I mean, this it's is by like text, so it's a lot easier to write than to actually say.
1: <laughs> yeah, does he actually use the word elucidate? I am sorry for breaking. Okay, here we go. No, <laughs> no I, I I actually... Elucidate? <laughs> <it would> not- <laughs> No wonder you gave me BRV. You don't want to mess up these words.
0: <laughs> and I went to college for eight years. Something tells me this actually stays in the podcast. But, uh, wow. Sure, uh, <clears> sure. <throat>
1: fire All right, let away. Me. His problem is it. Yeah, exactly. The mindset of these mid-independents is to keep downspacing further and drilling fringier. Fringier? Is that the word? Is that the uh, uh, word? Fringier. Fringier. Ooh, this man
3: <laughs> Talk about this, talk about that Chuck Yates needs a job I had a point, I don't know where
0: it's at Chuck Yates needs a job Welcome everybody to Chuck Yates Needs a Job, the podcast In the great tradition of American debate The Constitutional Convention Lincoln versus Douglas Kennedy and Nixon Biggie and Tupac we intend to bring you discourse above reproach. At this corner, weighing in at 147 pounds soaking wet and the reigning bagel champion of the Upper East Side in the pink trunks, quick draw capital. Fuchsia. (laughs) And in the other corner, weighing in at 162 pounds, the flyweight with the most imported housing accessories a fine young stallion from oklahoma brv i'm joined by my gracious and charming host co-host stacy mcdonald and guys here's the rule this is our first time to try this so give us a break what we did is we went into twitter we went into the dms there were four of us on this exchange and we spent about three weeks texting each other asking questions going through this we've transcribed it and we've got this transcript that we're in effect translating tonight into a podcast. And so bear with us, Stacey and I are actually playing ourselves and we have voice actors in to play BRV and quick Draw because a non-lives matter on the Chuck Yates Needs a Job podcast. So with that, these are the ground rules that Stacy and I laid out for the boys. We said, we shall accord ourselves with dignity and we shall not use a word if it is not found in the Bible. That said, we did tell the boys a little bit of Leviticus goes a long way. With that, I'm going to yield the floor and the first question to Stacy because I believe it's way too early for me to ask the question, what the fuck is wrong with you two? <laughs> Stacy, take it away.
3: Thanks, Chuck. So I wanted to start this off on the right foot. So I would ask both of you to say one nice, sincere thing about the other person.
1: Oh God, that's just what they made Hillary do with Trump in the debate. Her response was, he has impressive children, I believe. At one point, Quickdraw's kid drew a picture of my avatar and it was really good. Does that count?
3: No, that doesn't count. Try again, BBR.
1: He uses proper grammar. He knows when the English subjunctive should be used and the verbs in his sentence structure are usually balanced, which I appreciate.
0: (laughs) As the Unabomber did. Hey, quick draw. What's something nice you can say about BRV?
2: I mean, BRV is actually very intellectually smart and confident. He kind of reminds me of me 10 years ago. I know that he'll cringe at the idea of ever being compared to me and could rightly assert that is not a compliment, but I will say he is one of the few people on EFT I would give money to once he's honed down a few skills.
3: So what skills does he exactly need to hone?
2: I mean, humility, reflection... Being confident, having conviction in your views is an essential part of being an investor, but having humility about being wrong and reflecting where you have gotten it wrong is equally important. In my view, BRV is a decent engineer. I say decent because I haven't evaluated his work with the promise of being an investor, but investing is a lot about pattern recognition and reflection, which would be good to see more of. Possibly, Twitter is the wrong forum to see that, and hence, I don't see it enough in him but if he hones those skills, he can do some serious damage in my view. BRV, is that fair? I'm way less arrogant an asshole in real life.
1: BRV is a role I play for me. He represents a dark side of my personality that I normally keep hidden. That's why I stay semi-anonymous. I just think it's more fun that way. It's a selfless act. I'm here for everyone's entertainment and to stir the pot. As Quickdraw would say, I do think I'm quick to admit when I'm wrong. I don't think that it's fair criticism. Tinfoil hat 2.0, I admit that was a mistake within a month and completely reversed my position and went balls deep long. The most common comment I get from people who know me in real life is how hilariously unlike BRV I am. I'm actually a relatively quiet and shy person in real life, almost an introvert.
0: You know, I'd actually agree with that. I know you a little bit in real life.
1: Isn't it my turn to tell Quickdraw what he needs to learn to become a better investor? Sure. Fire away. His problem is that he paints with broad strokes. You don't know everything. You need to know about a business by looking through their financials. The granularity of detail required to hallucinate the reality to be gleaned from a spreadsheet modeled off of public financials? He often opines on the shortcomings of engineers and geos as if they are dumb and unnecessary. But he is woefully incorrect. There isn't one example of an old company who financially engineered their way to success. When we were all doing deals, we couldn't get 60% LTV loans at 5% interest, but it's what you do after that matters. I have spent most of my career as an operations engineer. I have covered the spectrum of landmen, finance focused to operations and engineering focused. The ones who focused on operations are rich. The ones who focused on the finance stuff are all here broke. Financial engineering is only, is only there for margin enhancement and luring the suckers. If your business model is good and you make money, then you don't need exotic financial engineering.
3: It was a good rant. Um, switching gears a bit. So what's your view on for both of you, what's your view on Aubrey McClendon? Good, bad overall. And you know, looking backwards, thinking about the sentiment change that's happened towards Dale in the last couple of years, has your view towards him changed at all?
1: I've never liked the guy, just a standard OKC. Promoter cut from the same cloth as his Anadarko Boom OKC ilk from the 70s and 80s that used to promote 400% of well costs. Over-financialized everything he touched because he wanted to empire build instead of create a real business. The one call he made correctly was his natural gas acquisition spree that ran up through 2008. If he had pulled his chips off the table after that big win, he would have been a genius. However, it's the gambler's mindset. Every time you win, you double down. Then eventually you will lose it all. Not only did he double down, he used leverage to triple and quadruple down.
2: That model loses every time. Quick draw, what do you think about Aubrey? I caveat my response with having known Aubrey personally for a long period of time. Let me start by saying that he was a visionary and a man with a lot of passion. He was charismatic and commanded attention. His contribution to our business is undeniable. He was, however, fed by his engineers and geologists, and in turn he put more pressure on them, and thus the cycle escalated on what was technically and commercially feasible. He was not a prudent risk manager, but as Charlie Munger says, show me your incentives and I'll show you your behavior. That was Aubrey's downfall, starting with public markets and ending with PE funds. There were some very notable funds who fed him to post-Chesapeake, that continued to feed his acquisition spree without the right guardrails. I try to stay away from hyperbole, like financial engineering, because it sounds like creating a boogie monster to rail against. I prefer risk management, which is key in our business. That was his downfall, right from hedging or lack of to buying huge swaths of acreage before its commercial viability was determined. But let's not forget, while Mitchell unlocked fracking, Aubrey commercialized and scaled it. Think Marcellus and Utica and Haynesville. Putting aside spacing issues driven by parent-child relationship, he was the OG and catalyst to the subsequent technological changes, which are distinct from commercial realities that unfolded driven by poor capital structure, poor engineering assumptions on spacing and type curves and commodity prices. As an engineer that actually worked for Aubrey, I can
1: tell you with 100% certainty that that was not fed by his engineers and geologists. I still have my old emails from Chesapeake saved where we would have mandates rolled down from Aubrey himself telling us to increase EURs on wells to some arbitrary number that he created himself because that's what it took to justify the play. There was a time when I worked in the Haynesville and Aubrey decided that our EURs were now 6 BCF and that we needed to make those numbers work. The next day in our morning meeting with the entire Haynesville staff, our district manager jokingly asked if any of us could name a well that would actually make six BCF and one person calling out our Sloan well.
2: As we had 40 drilling rigs running in the play. Did you all say no? All the engineers and geologists eventually covered, as you will note. He put pressure on engineers and geologists and they acquiesced. And the cycle escalated, making its way to Wall Street, where very few questioned the validity of these assumptions. Yours truly figured this out and hence never invested with him. I would have liked to see the engineers show spine and intellectual integrity. Chesapeake was a public company. The engineers had access to the same whistleblowing tools that the Exxon Reserves engineer used recently.
3: Come on, do you really think that a junior or mid-level engineer could take on Aubrey without dire career consequences?
2: Well, Well, this is not about BRV. This is about the system and department. I've seen junior engineers stick with it, but it does take exceptional spine and integrity and courage, and most often those people do well in the long run. But the whole thing escalated here, and no one told the emperor that he has no clothes. I don't expect junior engineers to stand up to Aubrey But I do expect them to say this is not real to their supervisors and let this roll up. Else this becomes the definition of a pyramid scheme. As a rule, hence I have avoided engineers from Chesapeake and my portfolio companies for this exact reason.
0: So to your point on incentives, people always say, hey, Aubrey believes, he bets it all, he buys on every offering was a very common refrain from the investment banks. I think it was overlooked that his wife was an heir to the Whirlpool fortune. Was maybe all his bravado driven by, quote-unquote, house money, given that he would still lead a great life because of the family worth outside of his personal Chesapeake holdings? I mean,
2: he would live a great life regardless. He made good coin as CEO. He was not focused on the downside, I think. All right, let's switch to valuations. What should an
0: oil and gas company be worth these days? In the public, in the private?
2: Hmm, that's a good question. I view an oil and gas company as an income product and not as something speculative to send to the moon. I try to buy assets with a finite time for return of capital on cash flows. I try to buy assets with a finite time for return of capital on cash flows, a significant chunk of it which I can hedge. As for the discount rate on those cash flows, (laughs) depends on externalities like ability to cut costs and upside potential but return of principal is my single biggest area of focus. I don't understand how traditional PDP buyers will buy assets where in seven years they get 50 to 60 cents of their principal back. This whole industry has been playing the terminal value game hoping for the bigger mullet buyer to come along. Which is a good segue into public companies, the traditional mullet buyers. I view public company valuations as purely speculative given how they trade. The same discipline needs to apply. Also note most of the time people are not subtracting GNA drag in their nav calculations. Thus my only energy public investments are in midstream, the few ones, and any energy upstream names are trades for me, sentiment driven, with short duration year or less, my investments are hence only private side.
3: So quick draw, do you hold assets in perpetuity in investments? And if not, you know, how do you exit these things?
2: we hold assets for long duration and then assume a sell at around uh, pv 20.
3: so are most of your historical asset sales into public vehicles or private operators
1: historically the big advantage in public markets was that the price maker was clueless dumb asses on wall street i refer to them as spreadsheet people who are the product of the investment banking culture the one that believes modeling An oil company is no different than a retailer or pharmaceutical company, which is dead wrong, of course. Therefore, as could have been expected long ago, they all got their asses handed to them, went broke, and now they are no longer market participants. As of the last downturn in the last half of 2020, they were all shaken out of their businesses. So now you have to think about who the market participants are and who are going to be the price setters on these equities. And that is not fundamental traders. It is generalist and technical traders. Those who are smart and adapted their strategy to account for the last few months, it has served them well. Going forward, there will probably be a return to fundamentals in the second half of the year. By then, I expect that old price has run up and you have missed any real opportunity to make good returns on your invested capital. If you aren't balls deep long in EMP equities right now, then nobody should be paying you to manage their money. It's not really a question of if anymore, just a question of scale, timing, risk tolerance, and beta. Old price will go up and public equities will respond in a big way in the next 12 months. I can tell you that with
2: 100% certainty. Okay, can I interject real quick, BRV? Can you tell me where in the Bible it says balls deep? <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm pretty sure it's in Leviticus. I mean, there, 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 there's some bad stuff in Leviticus. Old Testament. And God said to Moses, yeah. do not go balls deep.
1: <laughs> look. Okay, fine. Look. You know what? You Texans, New York <laughs> Texans need to stay out of it.
0: No, is he a Texan? Again, no, one minute. Is be, he a Texan or be, really an Oklahoman? No, he's really an Oklahoman. My
1: God, he speaks like a, a East Texan from Tyler, Texas, uh, pulp factory that I've dealt with before. That's how he sounds. He does. He <laughs> sounds like an East Texas pulp factory machinist. Ch- Chase has actually heard the real voice. And, uh,
2: Sounds like a chicken sexer.
1: Like I, I, I almost <laughs> like when I talk, like he's trying to be me, you know, refined. But at the same time, he's got that twang to him, like the guys I talk to at the refinery. Like motherfucker, you gonna go to work or not today?
0: <laughs> he. Uh, that, that's
1: what he sounds like almost. It it
0: it is kind of <laughs> ironic that the refined nature of his speech is also apparent in East Coast liberals that he rails against. I will give you that. That is very fair.
1: I think maybe these two people are the same person.
0: Maybe so. Maybe so. (laughs) Sorry. All right. Go ahead, Chuck. Your turn. Yep. (laughs) Why own the E&P companies? They will drill shitty wells, dilute you with massive equity offerings. Why don't you just own the commodity straight? Beta. You want the beta. And like I said, there are
1: no investors left in domestic U.S. E&P. So there's no point focusing on fundamentals. You gotta know that nothing catastrophic will happen in the next twelve months and then you will be out. There is absolutely no value in the public EMP space in the US. None at all. By my math, generally, you buy assets on a PV ten using a relative metric for one quarter of the cost of enterprise value of the public equities. These guys are almost all technically in default now. The wells will get worse in the future and inventory is orders of magnitude smaller than what the public markets believe. They're almost all screwed. That's why it's a trade, not investment. There's a definite time and that is about a year, if I had to guess. However, I do see real value in the Canadian EMP market. And that's not just because of Stacy is our moderator. There is real value there. Their reserves are real. There is absolute value there. Some of those names are trading at a big discount to what I would consider liquidation value or roughly PV10 of their PDP.
3: So do you think the U.S. public companies know that that much of their development portfolio doesn't need any hurdle rates? And then if that's the case, isn't this just an argument that they will return all that free cash flow to shareholders because they don't actually have any viable investments?
1: Little do people know that the wedge is not a terrible dinner salad, it is also the most destructive force acting on EMP companies in the U.S. Basically, is required amount of production needed to offset the natural decline of your producing base. This is usually how EMPs are creating capital budgets which is completely, and unfortunately, independent of any question of return metrics and hurdle rates.
0: You know, I've always viewed it as death by money forward economics. We bought the acreage. Oops, maybe it wasn't worth it. But screw it, the drilling will still meet our hurdles going forward. You know, our crap results aren't that good to date. But hey, at least we'll meet our hurdle results on the completion cost. Oops, hey, look, we just drilled negative rate of return stuff.
1: Yes, exactly. The mindset of these mid independents is to keep downspacing further and drilling fringier acreage until the money is gone. Whiting was a perfect example of this. They downspaced their good wells into being shit wells because they didn't want to let their production decline. They had to get the wedge. So I don't believe that there will ever be significant FCF spun into the investors in the US EMP. I think they're all operate. For their banks and bondholders now and probably forever.
3: You know, I have to agree with you. I'm also have been very skeptical of this kind of newfound US EMP discipline. Obviously, I look at it like because I'm from Canada. So it took Canada probably close to three years after the initial downturn in late 2014 to really start recalibrating their decline rates. And unfortunately, I think the US kind of begrudgingly slowed spending, but only really because of COVID. So I'm not convinced they really changed their stripes.
1: And even in the context of that, I could point to Meg. Take a look at the chart. Debt and product versus oil price. I'm telling you, it's a good chart. On the debt asset value metric, they might look great, but they have cut debt from 3.75 billion to 2.4 billion in five years while growing their production for 55 million barrels day to 90 million barrels per day how many us EMPs have 40% production rates profile while cutting debt by 45% while old prices have averaged mid 50s over that time frame that's pretty cool
3: yeah I totally agree with Meg I mean disruption has created value in Canada the lack of capital access is due to what I call um, the Permian capital vacuum. And this really caused a complete makeover of the industry. I mean, it takes a lot of time to recalibrate your business. And I just don't think the US EMP has had enough time in the penalty box yet. So I just wanted to change gears again. One other phenomenon that I've seen from lower realized pricing and lack of capital is what causes what I call idle engineers. So when times are good, you know, no one really cares about AFEs, but now the operators are really looking hard at all aspects of spending. I think there's many E&P engineers that have good ideas on where to lower costs and trying to find value. So maybe both of you could comment on what you think the operators could do to improve their operating capital costs. Or do you think just given the downturn, everyone's kind of running as lean as they can already?
0: And sprinkle a little bit of technology if you think it's applicable on the last question as you answer.
2: So I don't love drilling. So I'm not well situated to comment on drilling efficiencies. On OPEX, I've been surprised that we're able to cut costs, often in in excess of 15-20%, to even after acquiring from efficient operators. A lot of the engineers over the last 5-10 to years have focused on fracking and not on plumbing. Different skill set, and I feel that there's a lot to be squeezed out there with the right pair of hands. You have to recognize one thing about the EMP upstream business. We're price takers of our product, and we don't need to sell our product. Hence, we as an industry are more complacent than most. You see a night and day difference in commerciality in the same ecosystem going from an upstream operator to a service company guy. They run their businesses way more leanly because they have to compete and sell their product. And hence, I don't think upstream businesses are inherently that lean, though their driver should be to be the lowest quartile OPEX, CAPEX entity. All
0: right, BRV, what does the engineer think about that?
2: Yeah, we're approaching the end
1: of the technological improvements in operations. There's a logistical limit to these things, like cars safely driving with an 80 mile per hour cap for decades now. Drilling days are probably as low as they will get. Not to mention the law of diminishing returns kicks in. Cut 10% off the 30 day drilling time is significant. Cut 10% off of 10 days and it has less of an impact. But the fracks won't get any bigger. Recovery factors won't get any higher. Well, UIRs will drop probably dramatically on a going forward as operators are forced to downspace stuff they shouldn't be downspaced and drill fringe acreage for the wedge.
3: Okay, this next question's for both of you. So what is your favorite onshore play in the U.S. and why? And also, what play do you think is the most overhyped? And please try not to say something obvious like Alpine High.
1: If you're a long-term investor, I think the Haynesville is underrated. Marcellus economics will rapidly drop to second tier as Cabaret, Range, and Antera, etc. are coming to the end of their tier one inventory. The Haynesville wells become the most economic gas wells in the nation and fuel the next 20 years of gas consumption. It's a tricky one to play. But I think Chesapeake actually probably worth owning after they emerge from bankruptcy with a clean BS. Balance sheet. Balance sheet. <laughs> <laughs> as soon as I read it, I said balance sheet. Alright. But I think Chesapeake actually will probably be worth owning after they emerge from bankruptcy after a clean balance sheet. They still have Marcellus inventory, but piles of Haynesville would make a nice acquisition for someone wanting to be in the domestic gas for the long term. Williams also a good long term hold. Because of the transco gains, importance as the northeast volumes start to decline and the Gulf Coast gas wants to move northeast. More overhyped is definitely the Delaware. That oil is too volatile and spacing assumptions are ridiculous. There are two decent pockets, State Line and Leah County. But that may be only for another two to three years inventory max.
2: You know, I'll agree with BRV on the Delaware being very, very hyped, 100%. My favorite onshore play is actually the Uinta. Produces wax and diesel desired by refiners. The issue with the play is egress, but for cost of drilling and economics, definitely my favorite sleeper play. What do you guys think about hedging?
0: Are management teams and investors on different pages as it comes to hedging? I could see management liking hedging, stability of cash flows, etc. As an investor, I could see wanting to have exposure to the commodity, And if the tail isn't going to be aggressively drilled, then how much exposure do I have to the commodity if all my PDP is hedged anyway?
2: It's the opposite on the private side. Management teams want to gamble and play for swings. Investors need to lock returns to get return of capital. At least that's how it should be. Play for volatility with your terminal value if you want. Lock in certainty of cash flow to fund CapEx and return of principal. On the public side, management teams are degenerate gamblers and want more cash flows to justify better lifestyles and bonuses. Investors indeed want exposure to the volatility, or used to when commodities went, went upright. Bad bad formula. Suddenly now they have found religion because the mark to market looks bad. Your average public market investor is a suit who works for a mutual fund and just does not want to lose his or her job today. Another reason why I try to almost never own public EMP stocks. Alright guys, let's shift gears to politics.
0: And I want to take this in a different direction than in most political discourse today, and here's what I mean. I'm the oldest of four boys, and my dear sweet mother Sally was the absolute best at keeping the peace. She did not do it by being a dictator, but she put in place checks and balances. So like, if there was one Snickers left, Chuck, you cut it in half, Kenny, you get to choose which piece you want first. So each day of the week, she designated a different brother to get to choose dinner. She spent a lot of time preaching to us, look, you can do that, but the roles will be reversed one day. I think that's why I've always been good at getting along with folks, particularly people with divergent backgrounds from my own. What are some things we could do process-wise in government to add to the checks and balances so that we can you know, all come together? I'll give you a silly example here, just to make my point. If a Republican introduces a bill, let's say a Democrat has to name it. What do you think about that? We need to limit the power of the
1: president and return it back to Congress. Get rid of executive orders. If something is so imperative that it requires immediate attention, we live in the 21st century and we can make that work no problem. The real problem, though, can't be discussed with those guardrails, unfortunately. The ruling class has become entrenched in the... He sounds like freaking Quick Draw here.
0: <laughs> it's surprising that... in a bit how they get along. It's weird. Oh my I mean, god! It's, he it,
1: switches up on me.
0: It it really gets strange. Yeah. They both t- start talking did about they start 100, a hundred. They almost did. They start talking about hundred um, percent estate tax at some point. It's crazy.
1: The real problem, though, the real problem though, can't be discussed with those guardrails. Unfortunately. The ruling class has become entrenched and complacent. It is time for the Americans to take back what is rightfully theirs and reclaim their freedoms, unfettered and feckless and entitled bureaucrats. Democracies run smoothest when legislators fear the people they've governed. Thomas Jefferson had it right. When people fear their government, there is tyranny. When government fears people,
2: there is liberty. You know, it's hard for me to comment on ruling class and bureaucrats. (laughs) Definitely good sound bites. Look, all of this goes back to the first principles. In my view, America has three pillars, Capitalism, Multipluralism, Rule of Law. Now, The fundamental issues are that the Democrats have abandoned the Capitalism pillar, sometimes understandably because of Capitalism gone gone bad. Crony Capitalism is what we have today. The guy in the White House, till recently, lit the Rule of Law and then pissed over it. And Multipluralism, the fact that you can be white, black, or green and still make it, has not done well recently possibly disproportionately blown up by the killings of several racial minorities. Unless we square up and agree on these first principles, nothing's going to work. We have to agree to rule of law and reestablish faith in our institutions, some of which has been destroyed due to narratives and some of it needs to reform for sure. Capitalism is the only way we will succeed, it's the only thing that works, but it needs to be reformed to remove that blatant abuse by those with money and power. And finally, don't fucking bitch and complain about BLM, etc. Recognize we have an issue and fix it. It takes less effort and time to fix it versus bitch that it's a non-existential problem. Address the first principles and you will have alignment. If you cannot address it, nothing will work.
0: Okay, on the multi-pluralism point, which I agree is an important pillar, you say that minorities haven't done well recently. Can you give me some data? and time frame to explain what you mean pre-covid by any objective matter blacks enjoyed their most prosperity ever as measured by unemployment rates income home ownership etc the two races with the highest average income are asians and indian americans both historically victims of discrimination i mean obviously during world war ii japanese americans were rounded up and placed in internment camps We could run through similar statistics for other minority groups as well. I actually think race relations would improve if discussions were based on data and objective measurements.
2: This is the exact kind of logic that I struggle with. When educated and smart people like to dig in the sand and pretend everything is awesome, everything is awesome when you're in a position of privilege. I was speaking to my driver, one who rarely speaks about race. Yeah, he's African-American. And he finally cracked one day before the elections after hearing me speak to an EMP CEO with whom I was doing a dance on this exact topic. He blurted out, we were enslaved for hundreds of years and then when y'all abolished slavery, you had Jim Crow laws. How long have we really been free for? I still see friends of mine, some of whom are extremely wealthy and affluent and minorities, who coach their kids to be extra defensive when they encounter the law. Yeah, they have money. But even these guys are worried and can tell you how they're treated. Of course you don't walk their shoes, so it's easy for you to say it's a non-issue. Show me the data. People are doing well. Ask your minority friends when their guards are down how they really feel and how that feeling has changed over the last four years. Do they feel better or worse? So has this been an issue? Yes. It has been an issue even when Clinton and Obama were in power. Let's not pretend it wasn't an issue then. What have the last four years done to fuel this? (laughs) You have people like Marjorie Greene from Georgia in the house today. It revolts me. But yes, let's talk about how Asians are making more money than ever, even though we incarcerated their ancestors during World War II. It's now okay to be openly racist. We always had racial undertones in the past, but now completely overt. Maybe that's not a bad thing. As one other guy, African American as well, told me, I love Trump, man. At least now I know who the racists are. The last four years have emboldened people like Marjorie Green to run and be elected. Is the short answer? Never did I think in America we would witness things like this. Where I'm going with objective
0: measures, data, is we can start to identify what needs changing. It's not simple. Ultimately, I believe the data shows that where blacks do well, free markets, while most of the manifestations of racism are authoritarian government.
2: I I disagree. There's no such thing as objective data on such a complex topic. We're way ahead on this compared to the rest of the world. Don't get me wrong on that point of view. My point is that we acknowledge that there are some issues and move forward. I'm not suggesting reparations or affirmative action either. I'm saying policy geared towards economic upliftment for those left behind. Tangerine said some good things on that topic about business loans for the African-American community, etc. Never followed through. Well, Tangerine did
0: have the crime act he did give more money to historically black colleges than anyone else and his opportunity zone stuff uh seemed to be working pretty well brv what do you think
1: the irony of course is quick draw is into, inadvertently say it for me real quick no inadvertently. In- inadvertently 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 mm. how the fuck does he use this word if he's fucking backwoods
0: drilling shit god dang <laughs> Well, you're, you're, <laughs> you you're inadvertently dude you heard kitty during the podcast talk about there were fine imported furnishings all throughout brv's house the irony of course is that Quickdrawal
1: is inadvertently pointing out is that most liberal com- communities communities the irony of course is that is inadvertently pointing out is that most liberal communities in america are also the most homogeneously white and rich The only time these people deal with working-class people is the help. It's telling that this pushes through to the Democratic agenda, which is objectively way more racist than the more laissez-faire approach of the Republicans. The equity terminology that is now being pushed by our brain-dead majority is simply a mantra of racism in a creative disguise. The fact that they don't believe in equity because the programs are not created to provide on equal footing for all participants. The programs are made to pay people off to buy their silence and put them on the sideline to sit down and shut up. If you believe in the equality of participants, then you would work towards a level playing field, not a tilted one. It's modern day panaceum et sartonis. This see speaking Latin on me, uh, what does that mean? I don't even know what that means. It's a modern-day panaceum of Pantamenta menta <laughs> panta enta some I feel like I'm in Catholic Church again, and they're <laughs> speaking the Latin. This is modern-day panacea macentious. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> it's modern-day Hunger Games. The good news is that populism is taking hold in our country. The urban poor left and rural poor right have similar agendas. Ironically, if you read BLM and Proud Boys forums, their complaints are similar. ubiquitous, and persuasive and accurately accounted for, albeit each side has some strange parts of their agenda that are extreme and frankly strange. The attention needs to be turned on what actually is holding people back, the major and entrenched institutions of America. We need to be burning down figuratively the real oppressors. Harvard and the Fed not mom-and-pop stores in Minneapolis. If you read William Durant or Thomas Piketty, You realize that this is just natural cycle of democracies. As Marx pointed out This is a fatal flaw in the system But eventually the factory workers will always take over the factory and release themselves from their oppressors I think this is at hand and that's why we are seeing America and across the globe high finance using Non-recourse capital provided to them through the retail banks via the Fed is modern-day equivalent of Mark's factory owner. It's time the working class takes over the factory. The production function of our economy has been crushed by the overuse of debt capital. The main vehicle of this deployment has been private equity, which has hurt the American worker more than any other institution in this country, but it could not have existed without cheap debt from the Fed. Debt capital has a negative impact on the production function of America because the private equity playbook is to crush companies, lay people off, ship jobs to China. So, incrementally now, every dollar the Fed adds to the system is now doing more damage than good. That is a ticking time bomb. The only other way to stimulate American economy without Fed consequences is war. It's almost a certainty that Biden administration will deploy more American troops to hostile places around the globe and drum up conflict. The saber-rattling has already started. The big takeaway that everyone is missing on Trump is that he will be the embodiment of the broken system. East Coast, born into a wealthy family who went into boarding school, then Ivy Leagues, he showed just how rotten the system is. The fact that he will be able to attain the highest office in the country and really was not a special person in any way. The nepotism and lack of media
0: Meritocracy.
1: The nepotism and lack of meritocracy. Oh my God. <laughs> this motherfucker. <It's laughs> I understand why you got the lowly 90s consultant <laughs> to come in to do this. The just when I thought, in fairness,
0: in fairness, I didn't really read it. I kind of skimmed through his uh, parts. And
1: note to podcasters, none of us read this. We all skimmed, and now we fill the depths of the chasm that we have fallen into, which is BRV. Oh, now you can talk. (laughs) (laughs) Is that normal? Uh, that's my normal speaking. If I was like doing a podcast, but I'm blown away. Uh, the nepotism and lack of meritocracy is blinding when you consider it from the perspective. Before ACB, 44% of the Supreme Court was from New York City. How does a city with 2% of the population control almost half the highest court in the land? This is not a representative democracy anymore.
2: Man, there's some serious <laughs> hating going on here. Lots of terms like East Coast, elites, entitlement, New York City, MBAs, not yet thrown into the mix. This is where you often lose me. Starts sounding like rhetoric. I don't disagree with valid points around growing inequality, which is ubiquitous, but I don't hear you bagging on the folks who live in River Oaks. It's always the coastal elites, where some of your good arguments start losing objectivity. Hey,
0: this is where the discussion often turns ugly, and it's hard to avoid. To take Quick Draw's side, no doubt that words like coastal elites at all can be used as marketing spin to disguise hate. And racism and anger no question but to take brv side it's horrific to be called a racist when you aren't i think that term is thrown away thrown around way too often and indiscriminately and maybe indiscriminately isn't even the right word i want to give you one example from my lifetime george bush the first used willie horton in an ad against michael dukakis I think it's fair to say at a minimum it pandered to certain racist attitudes of some voters. Bush was denounced for it. And, well, to be fair to Bush, the ad was run by an unaffiliated PAC, and upon its publication, the Bush campaign demanded it to be withdrawn. But Leo Atwater and Roger Ailes clearly wanted to use it. But what I find interesting is that Bush wasn't the first to use Willie Horton. Al Gore was. He used it in the primary against Dukakis, Democrats didn't call Al Gore a racist like they did Bush. In fact, they nominated him for president a few years later. I bring this up because if it's racist to use Willie Horton, it should be equally called out on both sides. Objective, not relative standards. And let's stop grouping people because that's ultimately what racism is, right? Categorizing people as groups versus individuals. So here's where I was going with the the objective measurements. The human body is amazingly complex. You go to the doctor, she takes your temperature, draws blood, blood pressure, takes a history. Each bit of data helps the doctor isolate solutions to what ails you. Shouldn't we try to do that when we examine race relations? Examine as many individual pieces of objective data to try and figure out problems and possible solutions. So I I guess my point is, look, it's a really complex issue And it needs to be evaluated more granularly. We need to study the elements that allow LeBron James to be one of the richest people on the planet, while at the same time he's afraid for his son to be out past sunset. The more detailed and objective the data we study, the more likely we are to get solutions. If we don't take it to this level, deeper and more objective, then we won't get past the bantering of East Coast elitist, racist. Stacy, come on, bail me out.
3: Yeah, Chuck, I'm not going
2: to bail you out on this one. Then then change the subject. (laughs) Ratios, Chuck, ratios. Indeed we should. We should also examine why more black kids get pulled up by cops. We should also examine why you're more likely to be shot at being black in the same situation. It starts with the simple step of admitting there is an issue. The classic drawing the line that there isn't an issue and you are either blue live matter or black live matter does not work. No, let's stay on topic. Look, I agree.
0: Examine the data to find the problems and the improvements, and we can learn from both.
2: Acknowledge that there is a problem. Only then can you find solutions. Not all cops are bad, but we have enough cops, training issues, that it needs addressing. Don't brush it under the rug. I've said my two cents on the topic. I donate to the cops of New York City as they keep us safe. I also believe we have an issue. 80% plus of officer-level folks in NYPD are white Irish from Staten Island. How'd that happen? How does that impact their behavior? You can do both, support cops, but also hold them to a standard.
1: The problem is generational passing of wealth in this country. To break the cycle of poverty, you have to break the cycle of entrenched entitlement. The wealth gap is 10 to one African-Americans to whites. To bridge the gap, you have to cut the ability to pass wealth down to generations. This is the means of systemic oppression of the white people property owners in America that has been in place since the end of slavery. Wow. I'll have to
0: agree with BRV on that. I'm curious to see more. In the words of Rod Tidwell, you think we're fighting. I think we're finally communicating.
3: And that is a favorite quote of mine. To me, when I look at this, the ability to move between income quintiles is the difference between a bad and a good place to live and raise a family. And for me, I definitely don't want to live anywhere that doesn't have income mobility.
1: That's fair. But if you want to break the cycle of poverty, you have to start with a child... At birth, The misconception and thing that everyone gets wrong is that the fix is intervening too late. I think that's lazy because our society doesn't want us to do the hard work to actually get the job done right. 90% of your brain develops by the time you're five years old. If you're raised by parents that both have to work and are incapable of keeping you stimulated during their phase of life at the age of five, chances are you're growing up to become a responsive,
2: productive adult drops to almost nothing. Nailed it. That was the America I grew up in. I literally crossed income quintiles myself. Coming from a poor family, I don't see that opportunity anymore, or not at least in the same way as it was for me even 20 years ago. So do you acknowledge that we have a race problem in our country or not? That the African-American community is indeed starting from behind?
0: Quick draw, and I'm sitting here watching BRV nod, and I'm watching Stacy nod. I think we're all agreeing there's a problem. I think all we've really been talking about is How do we fix it?
2: And this is why EFT calls me a communist. (laughs) It's the daily subscription to
0: Pravda that gives you away. BRV, what's the fix? Well, in a world of limited
1: resources, which is called reality, then you have to choose where you allocate. We have chosen to allocate to late-in-life programs. I do have real questions about how we project quality of life onto other people. Because we see how we grew up and think that is what quality is. I lived and worked in the poorest parish in the poorest state in the U.S. I was in the field all day driving around and I would talk to people in the small towns who had nothing and they were dead broke. They were probably more content than the average engineer that I've worked with
2: over my career. And yeah, perspective matters. You know, I think we've gone a little off track. We started with the concept of racial issues or not, seems like we're all in agreement that it's an issue overlaid with and also exacerbated by socioeconomic issues. So when I see a large portion of EFT say racism is not an issue and BLM is bullshit, I cringe. I agree that Antifa hoodlums are morons, but so are the Proud Boys. But don't live with this smug view that we don't have a race problem, also coming from bad apples in the police force, period. From
1: what I can gather at this point, the big cities must be where all the racists are. Where I'm from and where I live my whole life, we all live together in harmony. Our police are polite and kind and treat everyone
2: with respect, basically no issue. (laughs) Ha! See, right there you blew it. A lot of the incidents of BLM also happened in smaller cities. Alabama still has segregation of schools enshrined in the state constitution. I can't speak for Oklahoma. I love the diversity that I see in Highland Park. <laughs> Don't get me started that y'all live in harmony. Seems like you guys are getting along great. Ha 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 As the host, I must declare
0: a winner of this debate, and it's clear and unanimous. The winner by knockout, Stacy McDonald. Hey, one last thing, and it's a new thing we've been doing on the podcast. I've asked each guest to come on and provide a playlist, and then on the pod, we discuss the songs, what they mean, etc., Let's do a quick limited version of that. Quick draw. Name a song or two that means a great deal to you, and then tell us why. BRV, you're on deck, and Stacy, you're in the hole. Can I dedicate my songs to Stacy? BRV? I think I'm more uncomfortable than Stacy is right now. No, you cannot dedicate your songs to Stacy. Quick draw. Go ahead, man.
2: Father and son, Cat Stevens. <laughs> my dad means a lot to me, and he's fairly old. He did everything for me. He was a hardworking engineer and made sure I got the best of what he could afford. I have fond memories growing up. Not rich, but happy. Possibly happier than I am now. And when I had my child, my firstborn, I realized what it is to be a dad. And every time I listen to that song, I always choke up, thinking of my old man and hoping that I can be a fraction of that to my son.
0: Dude, that's good stuff, Quick Draw. You know, I had a client back when I was at Stevens. Really good dude. Unfortunately, his father passed away while we were working on a deal, and I think half of our late nights on that deal were like one-part deal, three-parts therapy. And I'll never forget one night, after we had a drink or two, he looked at me and said, that's the last bit of free advice I will ever get in my life. Kind of cool statement. BRV, what about you? Mo
1: Thugs. All good, because that is the song I lost my virginity to while I was on repeat in the back seat of a Jeep Wrangler. Also... Righteous Brothers, Unchained Melody, because my four-year-old calls it the beautiful, beautiful romantic song. And I ballroom dance with him to it and sing it, which he thinks is the funniest thing on earth for some reason. And he's the cutest
0: kid ever to live. Oh, dude, that's cool. It's so cool to dance with your kids. My song with Sarah was I Just Want to Dance With You by George Strait. Keep that routine going because one day you'll pick up your kid and it's the last time you'll do it. I fear that that's happened with Sarah, my fifteen-year-old. So, Stacy, what's your jam?
3: Well, thanks to BRV, I just played Mo Thug, so now I have the mental picture of him back in the in the Jeep Wrangler. Um, you know, both of these are a pretty tough act to follow. So I think for me, I have two, but they're kind of the same. First would be Alabama Shakes This Feeling. And then finally, Eddie Vedder, Hard Son. You know, I listened to both of them a lot uh, when I was going through a really challenging time personally and professionally a few years ago. And I didn't think I could actually ever listen to those songs again, just because of how they were related. But I think I can listen to them now and, you know, they make me smile. So, you know, now I'm, I'm happy when I listen to them. So I know I'm going to be okay.
0: Yeah, no doubt music can serve as therapy. One of uh, my best friends, James Broach, died of brain cancer. And I used to listen to the song, My Chemical Romance's Cancer, which was about a obviously a cancer patient dying. And uh, used to cry during that song. And now when I hear it, I actually smile because I realized how blessed I was to know James and, and how great he was. So Stacy, you were awesome. Thank you so much for doing this. Uh, quick draw, BRV, you guys were great. I think this was a lot better forum than 140 characters apiece on Twitter. I think we got to flush some things out. Hopefully, we're going to do it again, and I really appreciate you guys doing it. By the way, audience, we're going to bump out here with the music, but you might want to stick around afterwards. Take care.
1: I have spent most of my career in operations engineers.
2: I have really, spent, <laughs> just, dude, I, that's your bag. You, you've
0: spent most <laughs> of your career
2: inside <laughs> operation engineers, <clears throat> kitty mainly. Uh,
0: <laughs> kitty, yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs>
1: You tell him these these this, out, is, this is insane. These
2: outtakes are going to be epic. We're going to like we're going to like have the podcast and then we're going to run 30 not, minutes of outtakes. I, I just want to have good cut I feel points.
1: like really stupid. I feel like I'm talking to a he must be a master's level or PhD
0: guy. My god. Okay. Sorry.